0: Today we celebrate the Feast of Epiphany. This feast uh, uh, traditionally marks three particular episodes in the life of Jesus Christ. The one that we're probably most familiar with, of course, is the one we hear in today's gospel passage, the coming of the wise men, the magi. But it also is uh, the celebration of his baptism. Uh, We've separated that out and in the United States we will celebrate that tomorrow. Uh, and uh, in other parts of the world they're celebrating this today, uh, the baptism, because they celebrated Epiphany on January 6th, the traditional date for it. The other is the wedding Cana, the turn of water into the uh, uh, bountiful and miraculous amount of wine. Not only wine, but the very best of wine. Each of these episodes is called an Epiphany which is much more than a revelation. We have that word today in our second reading. A revelation is an unveiling, an uncovering, uh, making aware. But epiphany is, is something a little bit more beyond that. And it really has to do with uh, shining upon, a sudden dawning, perhaps. This light shining and uh, such that it's brightness. And it's, uh, there's, there's something here for us. Uh, these, by the way, are not the only three epiphanies that we have in the the gospels. Again, those are the ones that are most uh, recognized and, and formally called that. But I would dare say the transfiguration was an epiphany, as literally as light shone upon Jesus Christ, light shone out of him, and he was transfigured in their midst. And perhaps an epiphany of the Last Supper, and the epiphany of the resurrection though this revelation in a magnificent way each of them has a connection and it shows God's breaking through God's trying to get our attention or getting getting the attention of someone anyway and I have to admit in these 12 short verses that we have in today's gospel passage there's probably a lifetime of homilies I joked last night that we could be here until next epiphany or until Jesus Christ comes again. And I have a feeling if I tried to preach at all, you would be praying very, very hard that Jesus would come again. Because there's so much here. There's so many little questions that we could ask, so many various points we could take off. Who are the Magi, for example? They're they're only mentioned in two specific areas of of the New Testament, here in Matthew and in the Acts of the Apostles, and there the word is usually translated sorcerer or magician. In fact, we do get the word magic magic from magi. Uh, But it isn't that they were magicians in the sorcery sense, but they were learned men. Men, uh, well, maybe women too, but uh, in particular maybe men because it's masculine. Men of some wealth, they had to be of some wealth because they were scholars. In order to be a scholar, you have to have Somebody provide you food or be self uh, providing. And the Magi uh, most likely came from uh, modern day Iraq, uh, at that time Babylon. Some have suggested maybe Persia and modern day Iran, uh, and uh, that's quite possible. We don't know exactly for sure. But we do know that uh, the Persians and uh, recognized the description of the Magi. uh, Instead of uh, destroying the Church of the the Nativity, they saw in the mosaics themselves. So uh, whether that was purposeful or not, we don't know. But the Magi, there's something here. They were students, not typically the ones that would go out uh, traveling, the you know, so uh, the uh, image of Indiana Jones comes to mind. You know, the the scholar who goes on great adventure. That's not them. They were just scholars, students, and yet they see something in the sky, something so wonderful, magnificent that they know they have to go. They can't stay in their places of study. They can't stay in their libraries with all their books and all their comfort, but rather had to give it all up and travel. How many days, maybe weeks, maybe months, to travel to go and see this newborn king? And when they get there, they they lose sight. And, and uh, often I, I've heard the joke, and maybe you have too, that if they were really wise men, they would have brought, brought uh, useful gifts. If you remember back last year or the year before, I shared how uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were indeed useful. Myrrh especially as a diaper rash ointment or it's used in funeral, funeral rites and, and frankincense as a deodorizer and it's used in prayer and gold, of course, money and this kingly connection. But we know they're wise because he stopped and asked directions. We know they're wise because he stopped in, in the most logical place to find the king of the Jews, in Jerusalem. After all, Jerusalem was the center of the kingship. And in the United Kingdom, united under David and Solomon, that's where you found the king. Not in some place somewhere far away. And so there they stop and they ask Herod the Great. This is not Herod the Tetrarch that we hear later, especially at Christ's crucifixion. This is Herod the Great, his father. And Herod the Great was a little paranoid. He was afraid of being supplanted. And perhaps, you know, there's a whole homily in there, too. Uh, Perhaps there's with good reason. He was not the legitimate king of the Jewish people. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish by law. He was put there by Rome as a puppet king. And he protected that kingship with an iron fist. Uh, uh, Both Herod the Great and Herod the Tetrarch Uh, would put people to death just for questioning him. Herod the Great put people to death in most horrible ways to protect his kingship. And so he's terrified and troubled. And he asks the scholars, where is a king to be born? And they respond to Bethlehem. Now, anyone that knows Old Testament knows, of course, you would find a king in Bethlehem. Not really, but... Of course you would, because this is where they found a king before, King David, as that young shepherd boy was living in Bethlehem. King David, the city of David, is Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not the city of David in in Jerusalem so often uh, picked, but the, the hometown city is Bethlehem. And of course that's where they're going to find the newborn king. And they do indeed leave, and they see it. So often we might get the idea that they were so far off, while they came from the northeast, most likely they would have easily passed through Jerusalem anyway, because Bethlehem is only another five miles. If you want to imagine, it's a little bit more than five, literally from here to the Church of St. Eloy. It's actually about six. I've traveled it enough that I know. If you want to imagine those six miles, they were so close, yet so far away. And they could have said, well, that's good enough for us. We, at least we know there's a newborn king. But no, they continue their journey. They continue on, and when they find the Lord, they rejoice. Not because they found him only, but they knew that there was something special about this newborn. Or according to custom, Perhaps he was already maybe one, which is why Herod had everyone under two, all the boys of Bethlehem under two, put to death. We celebrated that on the Feast of the Holy Innocents on the 26th of December. Celebrate is such an odd word for infanticide, but the wise men opened up their, their treasures, Gold, frankincense, myrrh. That, by the way, is why we get the number of three. And these are kingly gifts, which is perhaps why we call them kings. And I'm not necessarily upset that, that we sing in a little bit. We're going to sing We Three Kings, such a nice epiphany song. But, but again, they probably weren't kings in, the, in the, the traditional sense, but they were the wise and the of the ones who came, the first ones who came of, of the intelligentsia, those who had power and authority. And they bowed down and worshipped. There's no other way of understanding this. I don't know about you, but it's hard to believe anyone wise bowing down and doing acts of homage to a little child. Unless they understood that this child was more. Unless they understood that this child was even more than a king. And it was all because they followed the star. I, have this year, been captured with the thought of they left what was comfortable and convenient. They went on that journey, traveling ac- across great distances and, and some desert and arid lands. That uh, Traveled probably in hostile territories uh, because of different uh, countries had uh, different hatreds of different people. They traveled all the same, and they, they went into the vipers' nest, perhaps, and, and go, went into the court of Herod the Great, and asked the loaded question, a question that they might have known is going to get him angry. They could have been put to death on the spot. And they continued their journey all the same, and all that discomfort, because they knew, knew that this manifestation, this inbreaking of God's grace and mercy and love, meant they had to put themselves there. And I found myself thinking too, even in the, the baptism of the Lord, how the heavens are rent open, and that voice says, you are my beloved, be, beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Or the manifestation of the Lord's magnificence, and changing water into wine. Six stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's 180 gallons, give or take. If you do the math, it's something like 800 bottles of wine. Not only wine, but the best of wine. And all because Mary told the servers, do whatever he tells you. And I think ultimately that's the point of every epiphany, that the Lord is inviting us to do whatever this epiphany requires of us, even if it's uncomfortable. If you want, contrast the wise men, the magi's attitude with Herod. Oh, well, Herod, we know, doesn't, didn't want to come and worship. He wanted to come and murder. But all the same, he wasn't going to leave his castle, his palace. He wasn't going to leave his place of comfort to even find the one who threatened him so. Those who do find him. Those who do find the Lord and find him breaking through in our darkness, breaking through with the light that He comes to bring, we need to get accustomed to being uncomfortable. I think, and, and I know these are these are uh, words that challenge. But uh, these these last years, I've come to understand how how necessary it is. Oh, we we are creatures of comfort, aren't we? Well, oh, we like our nice warm showers and our warm beds and our cars that start up right away and and our houses and all those things, and, th- and it's all fine and good. But sometimes in our comfort we forget that the Lord does not do not create us for comfort it's one of my favorite quotes of Pope Benedict he said the world promises you comfort but you were not made for comfort you were made for greatness the greatness comes when we recognize how God wants our attention and more particular in this this day and this year I encourage us especially in this Feast of Epiphany, to see how the manifestation of Christ is made present again to us in this Eucharist. Oh, it's veiled in what looks like bread and what looks like wine. But as we come forward and receive him in this Eucharist, we are receiving something more than what our eyes can tell us. And we need to respond in love, saying, Yes, Lord, I believe you are present in this Eucharist. As I say that, I have to correct myself. I believe you are this Eucharist. You are present and you call us to follow you, even when it's uncomfortable. This is the only way the light of God's grace sometimes can go to the various dark places of our world. We as a church, as members, need to take the light of Christ to those places. Fulton Sheen, soon to be, I hope, saint, said, of course the wise men would go home by a different way. No one encounters the Lord and leaves the same. And I think that is true for us. Let us encounter the Lord this day and to leave changed, to leave by another way because we need to take the light that we receive here to the various parts, to the various wounded, to the hurting, to the lost, to help them find that Christ is indeed made manifest for them too.